Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzschauer. On today's show, who owns the media? Who's allowed to own the media? While in 1975, media meant television, radio, newspaper, and little else, today's media landscape is obviously different. You have cable and satellite television. You have that whole internet thing with uh, platforms like Hulu and Sling and YouTube Red and all these other over-the-top services and social media. Uh, Facebook's doing television, Amazon, etc., So are the rules that the FCC passed in the 1970s to regulate media still relevant today to ensure diversity of viewpoints or to prevent big companies from controlling everything? Or are these rules outdated? Should the FCC be considering changing them? Joining me to discuss this is Jerry Ann Timmerman. She is the Senior Vice President and Senior Deputy Counsel at the National Association of Broadcasters. This trade group represents television and radio stations, both big and small. Jerry Ann, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. And we're actually at the NAB building. I brought my podcast on the road, so it's exciting. You can hear uh, the, the exciting sounds of, uh, of this building as you listen to this episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Jerry ann what exactly are these restrictions we're talking about here? I think you know most people are probably not even familiar with these regulations. They don't really know that their local radio station or their local television station is subject to some type of ownership rule or ownership like uh, regulation. What are we talking about here? Well, there's a number of long-standing rules. First, there are cross-ownership restrictions. Uh, the FCC, um, since 1975, has banned the common ownership of a daily newspaper and even a single radio or TV station in the same market. Uh, that is a complete ban and has been around for over 40 years now. When you say market, what is that, like a zip code? or? Um. Okay, now you're asking me to get into something really complicated. It has to do with whether the TV station put or radio station puts a certain contour over a community where a daily newspaper is. So okay. basically, you're, th- you're more or less the same community. Okay, community. That works. And then there are restrictions. Not as strict, but there are still some limits on owning TV and radio stations in the same market. That is, if you own a number of radio stations as permitted by the FCC's local ownership rules, it then, if you own a TV station at the same time, it actually cuts down the number of radio stations you can own in that same market. Then there are what are called local rules. Uh, Those rules pertain to one media, medium only. For example, on the radio side, there are restrictions on the number of radio stations any one entity can own in markets depending on the total number of radio stations in that, in those markets. So it's sort of a sliding scale. In the biggest markets, for example, that have more than 45 radio stations, a single entity can own up to eight, but obviously in smaller markets that number goes down. And then um, a stricter rule pertains to the ownership of local TV stations. Uh, under the FCC's current rule, which has been in effect since 1999, In most local markets, and in TV, it's something called designated market areas, which is a construct by Nielsen um, having to do with, you know, what regions or areas a local TV station serves. Um, In most of the 210 DMAs, as defined by Nielsen, a single owner can have only one local broadcast TV station. In the biggest markets, it's roughly the top 50 of the 210 markets. A single owner can own two. So there's a lot of regulations there, and uh, 
maybe they made sense back then. I mean, do you think the FCC had good reason in the 70s if a community only had one newspaper, maybe one television station, maybe one radio station, maybe not even one of each? I mean, isn't there a concern that if all three were owned by the same company or all three had the same advertisers, that that would color the programming? It might reduce diversity of viewpoint, maybe diversity of ethnicity and race, uh, Who, whoever happens to be uh, doing the broadcast. I mean, do you think the FCC had good reason even back then to do it? Because I can imagine some free market types would say, oh, even back in the 70s, they shouldn't have done this. Well, actually, when the FCC adopted the uh, newspaper broadcast cross-ownership ban, it was controversial even then. Um, but this was the, you know, the 1970s, and there were only three major broadcast networks, and cable TV you know, hadn't taken off at all, and satellite TV and radio didn't exist, and the internet didn't exist, and social media didn't exist. So yes, you could certainly say that the rules had more justification in the past. And obviously these rules have an incredibly long history. Um, the restrictions on owning more than one AM station or FM station or TV station actually in the same area. Those The origin, original version of those rules dates back all the way to the 1940s. And it's really easy in this day and age to kind of dismiss these rules as outdated because, as I mentioned, you have YouTube Red, you've got Sling TV, you've got Hulu, you've got Amazon, you can watch things on Facebook. Any, basically, anyone with an internet connection can, can do all these things and will save the broadband question for another episode for those people that don't have an internet connection and aren't able to take advantage of those options. But the critics of removing the rules or, or proponents of these rules might say, look, that's all wonderful for national media, right? Saying that you have cable, satellite, social media, all these things, that's mostly national media. Maybe their concern is about local media. Their concern is about state and local government being held accountable. Maybe it's about corporations being held accountable, that if you have corporations that own these small stations or they advertise on these small stations, that when they do something awful, like pollute a river, that they're not going to be held accountable. Is that a legitimate point, that despite all the competition, despite all the diversity of options, we're in the golden age of television, people have never had more options to watch more content than ever before, yet what about localism? What about that, that, that uh, personal touch, that very, very hyper-local coverage of a school board meeting? Well, I have, I guess, a couple of responses to that. First of all, you really can't draw a strict line between local, regional, national, and international, particularly on a competitive sense. And the FCC's rules were, are designed to promote three things, competition, localism, and diversity. And you cannot reasonably argue that all these other outlets, online, cable, satellite, even though you might term most of the programming on these outlets to be, you know, regional or national or, or even international, they still have very strong competitive effects in every local market in the United States. Because your local TV station in, say, my hometown, Jefferson City, Missouri, it is certainly hurt as more eyeballs tend to watch Tend turn turn away from the local station to watch the you know myriad of options online and on cable and on satellite. Stations lose advertising revenue. If they're not competitively viable, there's no way they can serve their local community and continue to pay for and put on local original news. So the local versus national line 
it really doesn't make sense too much on a competitive level. And then localism is actually quite interesting because the FCC has found in the past that, for example, its cross-ownership rule, like the newspaper broadcast cross-ownership rule, actually hurts localism in the sense that study after study has found that commonly owned, for example, newspapers and TV stations, the TV station in those combinations actually does more local news. The whether it's the synergies or just being co-owned with, you know, a newspaper outlet whose sole business is news. There have been studies for decades that have shown that, com, you know, cross-owned media like commonly owned radio and TV stations in the same market, commonly owned newspapers and broadcast stations in the same market, end up with more news on the broadcast outlet than if they were owned singly. So that's because you might have a newspaper and a television station pooling their resources. Uh, there's some uh, similarities there, and you can you know, have the newspaper um, the, or the newsroom at the newspaper help drive the coverage of the local TV station. I mean, but is that a jobs thing? I mean, are, are, are proponents of these rules just saying, like, look, yes, that might help that a local TV station, radio, newspaper, they can pull resources, but that would necessarily mean fewer jobs because once they um, combine, they won't need as many people? Is that something you hear in this debate? Yes, but that's not the primary concern of the FCC. Um, they're concerned about the service by the broadcast licensee not so much, you know, an effect on jobs of, you know, some combination might have. So it's not it's not the job of the FCC to worry about that. Maybe it's your local congressman's or something like that. Yeah, or and then then of course you also have to remember that as far as competitive effects go, um any significant merger also has to get the approval of the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission. For antitrust. And therefore, right? Yeah, for yeah. antitrust purposes. So, you know, that's another backstop, you know, beyond these rules. And of course, there is this phenomenon of the newspaper decline, right? And everyone knows about it. They know that there's going to be a generation of kids that goes, what's a magazine? <laughs> um, <laughs> now, it's hard to play counterfactual, right? But do you have a sense of what today's media landscape in the traditional sense, meaning radio, TV, and newspaper, might look like without these rules. And it's hard to do that, right? It's hard to say, okay, if the FCC had removed them 30 years ago, what might happen? What if they removed them 20 years ago? What if they removed them 10, 5 years ago? And and uh, as they are required by law to look at these things every four years, but do you have a sense of what the cost has been, right? Because, you know, you obviously have some, some uh, critiques of these rules, how can you, you know, explain to the listener what the opportunity cost of these rules are, or what might have been? Well, as you say, that's very uh, difficult to answer. Um, you know, I am not going to say that, well, if the FCC had, uh, you know, not adopted the newspaper cross-ownership rule in 1975, the newspaper industry would still be just as healthy now as it was, you know, decades ago. Right, because obviously not, that is not the case. Because there's Craigslist, there's the internet, there's reasons they lost ad revenue that have nothing to do with regulation. Yes, but it's certainly true that the regulation, it can't be said to help. And clearly there were a number, you know, of of markets that had commonly owned um, outlets. So um, owners of media outlets did seem to find some sort of synergy in the common ownership. And 
when you have an industry that's been struggling like the newspaper industry, and in fact, I think it was in 2007, a website called Newspaper Death Watch was started that keeps an eye on these things, it really can't help to remove a, a source, a real source of potential investment for your industry. And clearly the broadcast industry was interested and did invest in newspapers. And there are still some entities that have combinations that were grandfathered in in 1975 when the FCC first adopted its ban. So there are still some entities, probably not as many as there were in the past, given the financial difficulties of newspapers, but there, were, there are still some broadcast entities that are interested in retaining their newspapers. And the current rule pre prevents them, for example, say you own you know, you have a newspaper and you own, you know, a radio station in that market. But, you know, if it's a large market, you could, if you didn't have the newspaper, possibly be able to own up to eight radio stations, depending on the size of the market. But the ban prevents you from acquiring even one more radio station. So it really puts a penalty on broadcasters who are interested in retaining their newspaper properties. Now, there was this fascinating piece from Politico um, a little while back uh, in their magazine. It's called The Media Bubble is Real and It's Worse Than You Think. And it's not actually about necessarily saying that journalism is too liberal or conservative. It's saying the media bubble is about where media growth is. So we've seen the decline in newspapers, but we've also seen a rise in internet publishing. But what they're saying is that that growth is all concentrated in major cities. And, and it was in the context of the election, like how did people miss Donald Trump becoming president? But that's not what we're talking about on this podcast. But we're talking about, okay, there's been a lot of growth, but it seems to be in New York, LA, Chicago, right? Um, Boston, like big coastal areas. And that the death of newspapers in rural America has not been replaced by internet publishing. Do you have a sense of whether the FCC's rules have accelerated that or played a role in that? And might we see a different um, set of circumstances maybe in the future if those rules were removed? Might we see growth in internet publishing in some of these other places, which might provide the localism and diversity that many of the proponents of the rules say that they want? Well, the rural versus urban and the you know, number of outlets, that is always an issue with any with radio or tv because they are an advertiser supported medium and advertising depends on the number of eyeballs yeah. <laughs> and population ears density. and population yeah. density there's simply no no known way to get around that and small markets do not have the population and the potential ad revenues to support a lot of different uh media outlets um on the other hand, I have read some articles that have said that actually some of the more mid-sized and even smaller newspapers have done better than some of the big, big city dailies in, in the internet age. Um, because maybe there aren't as many other options in these smaller markets, so people still continue to buy and advertisers advertise in the local papers more than they do so in the biggest markets. And it's big in some of the huge, you know, the big dailies in big markets, you know, like Philadelphia, for example, um, and other cities. Um, wasn't the uh, one of the newspapers in New York just sold for a dollar or something? Um, so. 
you know, newspapers still where other like internet options, say like Craigslist, maybe aren't as used as much in some smaller cities, the local paper with its certain with its ads or local radio shows still have, you know, local community sales ad advertised because there aren't the other options. So yes, small markets are different and in some ways uh, small market television struggles more than big market television. If you look at you know the number of stations that really struggle economically and have negative cash flow, in these smaller markets, if you're not, say, the top, or at least maybe the top one or two TV stations, uh, you're, you're really struggling. I had a—when he was Commissioner Pi, not—he's currently Chairman Pi of the FCC, right? But I had uh, Matthew Berry, his uh, chief of staff, on the show a long time ago. I think it was episode 90, and we're, we're looking at uh, almost 200 episodes of the Tech Policy Podcast now, or by the time this goes up, maybe we'll be past 200. Uh, but he was saying, that you know, similar things to what you said, that there's so much evidence that the rules haven't accomplished what they were meant to accomplish— that things like joint sales agreements, which are you know mostly banned and sometimes allowed under the rules, they actually do contribute to diversity and help people survive. The idea just being like what you said, pooling resources, combining equities, saying like, okay, we're going to sell advertising to multiple different stations at the same time or whatever. So why, in the face of all this evidence, you know, you write all this scathing stuff um, in your blog and in the, the, in the NAB filings to the FCC, you're saying, how are you ignoring all of this evidence that the rules aren't working? Why would the FCC under Chairman Wheeler, the previous uh, administration, ignore all this evidence? What could possibly be the motivation to just look at all of this evidence and you make a compelling case and just say, no, we're going to keep the old rules? Well, I media ownership, media, you know, consolidation is politically a very touchy subject and, you know, it causes lots of controversy and, you know, lots of difficulty. I think it's both, you know, in Congress and at the FCC. And different chairmen also have different priorities. Um, some chairmen were much more interested in, you know, the promotion of broadband and if they were going to take on something controversial, maybe they wanted to uh, adopt net neutrality rules. And, you know, there's only so much bandwidth and so much energy that any, like, FCC chairman have that, that they may, I mean, I'm just speculating, this is my own personal opinion here, they may just choose to do certain things that they seem that are the most important things to them, and there's just a limit to the number of politically controversial topics that they want to tackle. So, you know, there are obviously critics of your position. And, you know, I would say tech freedom is probably more in line with trying to repeal some of these outdated rules. Um, And of course, uh, it seems like Chairman Pai is sympathetic to that case as well, because he dissented from many of his predecessors' uh, moves on media ownership. But there are some loud voices on the other side of this debate saying, like, that this is all wrong, that we're not appreciating the effect of consolidation, right? So, you know, the topic of this podcast is who owns the media. There's a section on Free Press's website. Free Press is a a digital left activist organization that is uh, often very critical of tech freedom, has even launched personal attacks at me on Twitter, which is always fun. Uh, But they've got a section, you know, and it's, you know, it says, quote, massive corporations dominate the U.S. media landscape. 
Through a history of mergers and acquisitions, these companies have concentrated their control over what we see, hear, and read. In many cases, these companies control everything from initial production to final distribution, end quote. Given the anxiety over just big corporations in general, right? We got big tech now, Facebook, Google, they're coming under scrutiny. Big oil. This country has a long history of once companies get big, there's a backlash. Comcast purchasing NBC was a big deal, right? All these these mergers. And when content and uh, distribution companies merge, there's a lot of anxiety. So given all of that, should we be allowing more consolidation? Should we be comfortable with newspapers, radio, TV merging, even if it's just to remain competitive and survive? Is it worth the cost of potentially giving more power to the powerful? Well, I would like to point out first the disparate effects of regulation and how it competitively disadvantages, um, you know, some of the last remaining, you know, locally licensed and locally oriented media. Um, yes, big mergers, say, in the uh, pay TV industry, like AT&T and DirecTV merged, and, you know, Charter and Time Warner Cable merged. And yet, despite mergers like that, where you have, you know, a single company that, uh, or a single, you know, multi-channel video programming distributor who can control or, you know, hundreds of channels that a local viewer may see, in most of those markets, you can't own more than one broadcast TV stations. So just from a competitive point of view, um, the FCC rules really prevent broadcasters from achieving the economies of scale and scope that are really necessary, I think, for survival in today's media marketplace, but also have been shown uh, to play a role in, you know, local news production. Uh, study, multiple studies have shown that uh, television programming is very much subject to economies of scale and scope, and local news production specifically, and studies have shown, for example, that um, you know, as, as I mentioned before, that, you know, commonly owned newspapers and TV stations, you know, the studies are unanimous in that the uh, TV station will end up producing more local news than an independent station. And also, I think with broadcast, I wouldn't want to over-exaggerate the extent of the consolidation. Uh, yes, there have been a, a, a significant consolidation, for example, in radio after uh, Congress passed the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which for really for the first time allowed the ownership of you know, multiple radio stations in the same market. Some radio companies grew quite large. On the other hand, we still represent a lot of you know, small radio owners that only have you know, a very few number of stations. So you know, there is still, still a mix, and there are still medium and smaller uh, TV station groups that tend to have stations in, you know, medium and, and smaller markets. So you may hear, I mean, all you may hear about are, you know, the biggest media companies. Um, and I might point out that in terms of like market capitalization or something, those media companies are swamped by the wireless providers and the, uh, uh, the giants like uh, Google and Facebook and YouTube. Right. Um, so I don't think I think there is a bit of an exaggerated picture on how big broadcast media really is. 
Are overall. you optimistic about the future? I mean, it's easy to get so pessimistic when we talk about media ownership, right? I've had I've done podcasts where it's like newspapers are dying. Oh my god, it's so sad. And it, you know, there's like a nostalgic element to it, right? And then there's also just very real things about lack of investigative journalism, not holding state and local government accountable. But you know, to wrap up, are you optimistic? You know, it's okay to just say no, you're not. <laughs> but you know, what what should our listeners of this program be looking out for? You know, yes, there's so much consumer benefit from the internet and from competition and all these ways to watch and consume content. But that localism, that personal touch, that um, you know, those local voices covering local issues, covering your city council, your state legislature, is there reason to be optimistic about the future? Yes, actually, I think so. First of all, I mean, there has been, oh man, so much angst about the newspaper industry. I think part of it is we do have to get away from the idea that a newspaper, as the FCC's actual outdated rule actually says, is something that's physical. published, yeah. yeah, physical, that something is actually, you know, published and distributed physically um, in in the, in the community. And we have to get to the idea that, you know, I think, uh, you know, media outlets may become more multi-platform, that, you know, newspapers might reduce the number of days they produce a physical copy, perhaps only on Sundays. And then they are online only other weeks. So, you know, I think, you know, there is a way for what was the traditional newspaper to evolve. And, I don't think anyone can really predict what that is going to be. And I do think there is still a place uh, in today's marketplace for outlets such as, you know, your local TV station that does local news because there's not that many other outlets doing the same thing. Right. Um, CNN's not covering your city council. Yes. Yeah. Um, Again, there are, you know, serious economic stresses on, on that model because it is more advertiser-supported. You get, you know, your local broadcaster <laughs> can't get subscription fees like uh, cable networks. Um, but I know our members um, are certainly looking to the future. They're looking towards, in the television side, you know, the approval of the new uh, broadcast TV standard, Next Generation TV, that will allow 4K. Um and allow different, more and different types of services. You know, more streams, much better picture and video, you know, all kinds of enhanced like emergency warnings, which I think we've seen with recent events, your local broadcasters uh, still the place to go for uh, local emergency information. Um, so I would say I am cautiously optimistic. And of course, millennials have discovered this amazing life hack called purchasing a television antenna. And there's some hilarious articles from young people being like, oh, my God, free TV. This should be illegal. Uh, it's been around for a while, guys. I'm glad you're finally discovering that. But uh, maybe that, you know, that desire to cut the cord to not be held to a giant cable package might actually be helpful. And uh, we do expect that uh, sometime this month or the next, the FCC will be looking into these media ownership rules, and uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but do you have any final thoughts to close out the program? Uh, yes, actually, it is amusing. You mentioned the, oh my, the, you know, the discovery of the antenna. <laughs> uh, I, I would like to say that, you know, studies over the last few years of consumer surveys have shown that the number of people getting free over-the-air TV signals has increased. And, uh, you know, a good 
number of the cord cutters, uh, they get rid of their traditional, you know, MVPD, whether it's cable, satellite, you know, pay package, and rely on a combination of OTT, you know, Netflix plus, right. you, you know, local stations, um, you know, obtain for free. So that actually is more than a trend. Well, we'll leave it there. And uh, like I said, we'll be tracking the issue on the show. And uh, Tech Freedom, if, if, uh, if the FCC does uh, open a proceeding, I'm sure Tech Freedom will be filing. Because if there's anything Tech Freedom likes doing, it's filing in telecom proceedings. But um, <laughs> that's it for today. Uh, my guest has been Jerry Ann Timmerman. She is the Senior Vice President and Senior Deputy General Counsel at the National Association of Broadcasters, which represents television and radio, both big and small. Jerry Ann, thanks so much. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please leave us a review because it will help others find the show. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.